WOA News. Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Butty, Washington. Today is Wednesday, October 12th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Ethiopia joins Uganda in supporting call to lift sanctions against Somalia. You have Al-Shabaab that is able to purchase from the local markets and illegally smuggle these weapons from, say, Yemen or elsewhere. But on the other hand, the government is restricted. An Ethiopian academic says only the U.S. and the European Union have the credibility to facilitate genuine peace talks between Ethiopia and Tigray. Refugees seek legal assistance in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Catholic bishops in Malawi decry poor government administration. Lesotho has a new coalition government following Friday's parliamentary elections. This new government has serious challenges. The economy, the high unemployment rate, the safety and security. We wish them well and we hope they will deliver. For Basotu. And child marriage and female genital mutilation are on the rise in the Horn of Africa. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Somalia is getting support for its campaign to have an arms embargo lifted after Ethiopia joined Uganda in backing the action. The UN Security Council is set to vote in November on renewing the partial ban, which Somalia says should be removed so that it can better fight al-Shabaab terrorists. Ethiopia's support came after a rare July incursion by Islamist militants into Ethiopia amid a large-scale offensive by Somalia and its allies against Against the group. Ahmed Mohammed reports from Mogadishu. Somali President Hassan Sheikh Mohamud and Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed say the three decades long UN Security Council sanctions should be removed so Somalia can better fight the militant Islamist group Al Shabaab. The two leaders issued a joint statement September 30th amid an offensive by Somali troops and their allies. Somalia called on African Union member states in July to support its campaign to lift the embargo, which includes pans on high-caliber weapons and military vehicles. The Somalia-based security research group, Hiral Institute, in February report said the arms embargo was failing to stop al-Shabaab from smuggling weapons that the federal forces were not allowed to buy. The institute Samira Gade says Somalia's capabilities are limited because it needs permission from UN Security Council members to buy certain weapons. But on the other hand, you have Al-Shabaab that is able to purchase from the local markets and illegally uh, smuggle these weapons from, say, Yemen or elsewhere. And so for them, they, are, they have access to anything without any obligations. But on the other hand, the government is restricted. Despite the restrictions, Somali forces and their allies have been making gains against the militants. Somali President Mahmoud's all-out war against al-Shabaab has seen scores of villages recovered from the militants in the recent weeks of intense fighting. The terrorist group says it has inflicted losses on the Somali military, though the casualty figures cannot be confirmed. Mohamed Moussa Matan teaches political science and international relations at the University of Somalia. He says the sanctions mean Somali forces do not have enough firepower to defeat the militants. 
But Matan admits allowing Somalia to get high-caliber weapons is still risky. He says currently giving high-caliber weapons to Somalia is also dangerous due to lack of regulatory mechanism. But it is essential that the government's weapons be better than those of al-Shabaab if the government is to win the war against al-Shabaab. The UN Security Council imposed an embargo on Somalia in 1992 because of civil war and factional violence. The embargo was partially lifted in 2013 to help Somalia security forces develop and fight the Islamist militants. The remaining sanctions, which require requests from certain weapons to be approved, are renewed annually. While Somalia has for years called for the embargo to be lifted, President Mohamud has been campaigning since he was elected in May for the support of neighbors. In August, Mohamud and Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni called for the embargo to be removed during Mohamud's visit to Kambala. Former Somalia National Intelligence Deputy Director Abdisalam Gulet says Somalia needs heavy weapons like bottle tanks and armored personal carriers known as APCs. Somalia the arms embargo on Somalia was mostly supported by the neighboring countries because they were afraid if Somalia got heavy weapons, it could use them against its neighbors. But I don't think Somalia could get warplanes at the moment. Now that Ethiopia, which is among the strongest countries in the region, is campaigning for the lifting the arms embargo, it's a good step that has been already taken. Analysts say a Shabab's July incursion into Ethiopia's Somali state, one of the deadliest reported in recent moments, was a major factor in Prime Minister Abiy's public call for lifting the embargo. At the last UN Security Council fought on the embargo's renewal in November 2021, Kenya was among the 13 council members that endorsed the extension of the partial ban. With the next fourth is just weeks away, it's not clear if Kenya will pack Somalia's push to have the embargo lifted. There was no response to the request for comment from Kenya's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Even if Nairobi supports the move, Somalia will need more support on the council for the embargo to be lifted. Ahmed Mohamed for VOA News, Mogadishu, Somalia. An Ethiopian-born academic says if Ethiopia truly wants peace in its conflict with the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, Ethiopia must first stop its attacks against the Tigrayan people. This after the Ethiopian government made two overtures over a one-week period, expressing its interest in negotiations in a peaceful resolution of the two-year civil war. The Associated Press reported last week that the Ethiopian government had announced its acceptance of an African Union invitation to hold peace talks with the TPLF. On Monday this week, Ethiopian President Salewak Zode repeated her government's interest in a peaceful settlement. Ezekiel Gabisa is a professor of history and African studies at Kettering University in the state of Michigan. He tells me that the TPLF also accepted an invitation for talks in South Africa, but the invitation lacked clarity. He also says only the United States and the European Union have the credibility and leverage to bring both sides to the negotiating First of all, the president of Ethiopia is a ceremonial constitutional head of state and she doesn't really do the politics, so she's presenting the views of the government. 
Is TPLF ready? I think September 11, 2022. The TPLF made it clear that they would want to conclude this war through a negotiated settlement. And the United Nations, the Africa Union, all praised the government of Tigray for accepting the AU as the mediator or facilitator or whatever role that they could play, that any political settlement should be shepherded by the AU. The Tigray government accepted that in that letter. They also accepted the um, addition of other intermediaries, asked for even experts to guide any negotiated settlement after the ceasefire. And they have actually met with the Ethiopian government uh, three times through the mediation of the United States government. So if ready means to accept all conditions, the Tigray government is ready. The Ethiopian government, on the other hand, wrote a terse statement that uh, they would accept the AU's uh, negotiations a couple of days uh, ago. But at the same time, they are mobilizing uh, not only Ethiopian national defense forces and sending tanks uh, through Afar to the Tigray region, but also sent about 30 divisions to Eritrea and attacking from the Eritrean side. There is no peace process right now that is promising to start. The U.S. Horn of Africa Special Envoy, Mike Hammond, was supposed to have returned to the region last week. How would you describe U.S. role in the efforts to bring about peace in Ethiopia? I mean, judging on the basis of what had happened in the last year or so, when the Ethiopian government and the Tigray regional government actually met three times, it's the U.S. envoy that actually played the critical role of making sure that they actually met. The last one in August that they met in Djibouti, Mike Hammer facilitated it. Now, if there is anyone that has a credibility, therefore, to bring them together, to have leverage on both of them to bring them together, it is the United States. The African Union does not seem to be impartial right now. From the letter that I just talked about that the chairman wrote, he doesn't seem to be impartial. The high representative of the AU, Mr. Obasanjo, the Tigraita has said they don't consider him impartial anymore. So the credibility and the leverage on both sides to bring them to the table is in the hands of the United States government and the EU. If the U.S. acts with presidential authority, with clear engagement, and then also brings the EU on board, they have not only the credibility, but also the leverage to force both sides to the negotiating table. Professor, thank you so much. Again, as I said, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. Ezekiel Gabisa is an Ethiopian-born professor of history and African studies at Catherine University in the state of Michigan. He was speaking with us from Flint, Michigan. The Lesotho investigator for the Afrobarometer public opinion research firm says the country's new coalition government reflects the will of the voters. Debusen Malipani says voters were disappointed by the performance of the most recent coalition government led by the All-Basoto Convention ABC party. That administration was marred by internal fights that critics say shortchanged the delivery of services. Malipani's comments come after Samuel Matikane of the Lesotho Revolution for Prosperity 
RFP party announced on Tuesday that he has formed a three-party coalition government. Matikani's RFP won 56 of Lesotho's 120 constituencies, joining with the Alliance of Democrats, Five Cs, and the Movement for Economic Change, Four Cs, puts the RFP above the 61-seat majority needed to govern. Malipani tells me that Basoto hoped the new government will deliver much-desired change. RFP could not get the 61 seats they need to be able to form a government. They only got 56, and as such, they had to form a coalition government with other parties, and they went into a partnership with AD, which got five seats, and MEC, which got four seats. And that gave them, I think, uh, 65 seats for them now they perform a government. What happened to parties like the All Basoto Convention, ABC, and uh, Democratic Congress, the DC, that dominated the most recent government in Lesotho? Why do you think they are not part of the new coalition government? They have not opted for ABC or DC, and I'm, I'm not surprised because as you ask, how come what happened to these two parties in the last election? They were the major parties in Lesotho and garnered most seats. And they ended up being in a coalition together after the first coalition of four parties from the 2017 election fell through in 2020 when Tom Tabani also had to step down. So really, we are not surprised that they performed this badly, particularly the ABC, because from 2019, the ABC has been embroiled in internal fights, and as a result, service delivery suffered. And it was very sad because ABC was voted in by a lot of people because they wanted change. And this change did not come through from ABC. In fact, the perception of corruption increased highly between, say, 2020 and 2022. And the security situation, safety and security situation, has also suffered greatly, as you know, Lesotho is the murder capital of Africa. It's number one in the rate of murders in the whole of Africa. So I think Basotho are glad that these two parties have not been part of the government. And I think RFP got all this support because people wanted somebody different. So Matekani had not been actively involved in politics before because from our survey, as we have seen, People are just sick of politicians in Lesotho. So Matekani is offering them something fresh. We hope you'll not disappoint Basotho as the ABC did. There are all kinds of challenges awaiting this new government, including political reform and uh, the economy. What do you see as the new government's uh, immediate challenge? So this new government has serious challenges economically, the economy, the high unemployment rate, the safety and security. And we hope the new parliament will pass the reforms bill 
which the past government did not. And I think that's another thing which has really upset the voters because that was Basutu's voice there in that reforms bill. Because in it, it's going to address these issues of a politicization of our security agencies. So we wish them well and we hope they will deliver for Basutu. Lebusan, thank you once again for the opportunity to talk with you on Daybreak Africa. Thank you. Debusen Malipani is the Afrobarometer's national investigator for Lesotho. She was speaking with us from the capital, Maseru. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Wednesday, October 12. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Catholic bishops in Malawi are accusing the country's governing Tones Alliance of failing to honor promises made during the campaign two years ago. In their pastoral statement issued on Monday, the bishops said despite the promises to improve people's lives, the daily struggle for survival deepens for most Malawians. But the government says it is doing something to address those concerns. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre. The pastor statement titled A Call to Hacking to the Crime of Poor Malawians highlights five major areas where it feels the administration of President Lazarus Chakwila failed to improve. These concern the fight against corruption, service delivery, government austerity measures, food security, and good governance. Father Alfred Jaima is the Secretary General for the Episcopal Conference of Malawi, an assembly of Catholic bishops in the country which has issued the statement. He says the statement is in reaction to the bishop's observation on the administration of Donce Alliance. For example, they are talking about the vice of corruption to say that the expectation of the people when this new government came into power two years ago was that it was going to fight mightily this vice. Unfortunately, what we see and observe on the ground is that corruption is actually gaining ground. The bishops say that they believe that honest and decisive leadership on corruption, especially regarding high-profile cases and persons, would send a resounding signal of the serious determination to eliminate graft and mismanagement. They say while they appreciate the complex and complicated nature of systematic and organized corruption, and there is need for all those tasked with its elimination to do their duty without delay. The statement comes seven months after the bishops released a pastoral letter read in all Catholic churches accusing the government of being weak in the fight against corruption. George Peel is a political analyst based in Nzuzu. He says such communications indicate that the Chakwera administration demonstrated gross incompetence as duty bearers. Because usually for a period of five years, they release once. And usually they do that if there is some kind of negligence from the government side. But now releasing it twice in less than 12 months and within the two years of the uh, administration, shows a bit of uh, gross incompetence on the administration to respond to critical issues affecting people's lives. A survey which measured public perceptions on governance by Afrobarometer and an partisan research network also found that about 80% of Malawians 
think the country is heading in the wrong direction. In the survey, many people said they would vote for the former governing Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, if the new elections were conducted. However, Piri says the Chakwera administration would win back people's confidence and trust if they practically fight corruption. Currently, they are talking about corruption. And talking about corruption is not fighting corruption. Corruption can be fought only if the culprits are brought before the court and the justice has been sought. And nothing of that nature is happening in the country. Malau's government spokesperson, Gospel Kazako, told the state-run Malau Broadcasting Corporation that the government is doing something to address concerns bishops have raised. On the issue of corruption, for example, we think that on our part as government, we're doing all we can. We have employed a record number of staff just to make sure that the Anti-Corruption Bureau is well capacitated because we are also very concerned when there's delays. Certain cases taking two years, five years, ten years. I think it's very frustrating. So we share the frustration with the the Honorable Catholic bishops. Kazako said the government plans to have a meeting with bishops on the best way to address the concerns. Labek Masina for VOA News in Blanta, Malawi. The United Nations Children's Agency, UNICEF, says child marriage and female genital mutilation, or FGM, are on the rise in the Horn of Africa as a devastating drought intensifies, pushing families to the edge. Ruben Kiyama reports for VOA from Nairobi. Some say girls as young as 12 are being forced into child marriage and female genital mutilation at alarming rates. Emmanuel Kumper is the UNICEF Regional Gender Advisor for Eastern and Southern Africa. Over the last 10 years, there has been an increased attention on issues that matters to girls by government in the regions, but the investment in adolescent girls remains far too limited, and they continue to face increased risk of child marriage, early pregnancy, and HIV infection. We have the highest adolescent pregnancy rate in the world, with alarming trends in Mozambique and Angola, And we know that every week, more than 3,000 girls are newly infected by HIV in Eastern and Southern Africa. She spoke with VOA as the world prepares to mark the International Day of the Girl, celebrated annually on October 11th. According to the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, several countries in the Horn of Africa, including Somalia, Ethiopia and Kenya, are suffering a historic drought that is affecting the lives of more than 36 million people. Hafsa Omar is a 19-year-old girl from Somaliland. In my country now, they are going through FGM. Although there are lots of awareness, but it's still like it's something which is going on because it's part of our culture and um, it's a taboo that young girls cannot talk about it. Again, it's going back to the psychological health-related things because when a young girl goes through this, She never has the chance to talk about it. She cannot express her feelings. She cannot say her opinions. In an assessment carried out in Somaliland earlier this year, almost a quarter of the people interviewed reported a rise in gender-based violence due to drought, including child marriage and domestic and sexual violence. Omar says girls have faced new challenges this year as a result of the triple threat of covid conflict and climate change you know lots of young girls were having mental health issues it was a really hard time during the covid having a drought and all that it wasn't easy to find someone to talk about how this thing impacts our lives 
how it changed our lives because out of nowhere the world changed into from face-to-face conversations to just virtual meetings. UNICEF says in Ethiopia child marriage has on average more than doubled in the space of one year especially in areas worst affected by the drought. In Tanzania child marriages too seem to be on the rise but UNICEF and Tanzanian authorities have launched a campaign aimed at ending the practice. Nabiha Kasim Ali is a youth activist with UNICEF Tanzania. She says this campaign seeks to outlaw the 1971 Law of Marriage Act, which currently allows girls to marry at 14 with court consent and 15 with parental consent. Child marriage and FGM drive girls out of school and leave them more vulnerable to domestic violence and a lifetime of poverty. Ruben Chama, VOA News, Nairobi. And that's it for this Wednesday, October 12th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for coming aboard with us this morning. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I am James